If you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, uh, we're picking up on the first verse there as we keep going through our, our series. And uh, I'm going to start with a little bit of a rant, as I'm prone to do. So I had a pretty frustrating couple of weeks here. Uh, I told you last week about some of this uh, experience with Alaska Airlines. Yeah, well, we're going back there because the uh, pastor's not done with it yet. And I'm not done with them yet either. Who knows how long this story is going to go. We went down to Biola University to drop off my daughter. One of her four bags, one of the two action packers that we took, um, did not arrive with the others. It had, both had been uh, zip-tied closed and had been taken down. When we got there, it was in baggage claim, and when we retrieved it, 80% of the contents had been taken. Inside it was a little small, little... Uh, grocery store bag with someone else's stuffed animals and sippy cups and a few toys put inside. Weird. Which we handed back over to them. And uh, inside those content, or the, inside the, the pack or some of the contents taken, her um, textbooks, her formal shoes, some clothing, all her jewelry, uh, some gifts uh, from uh, the boys for Christmas and, and whatnot. And uh, anyway, so it was very troubling when we arrived, and so we went back to the hotel after about an hour at the airport dealing with the baggage claim. Back to the hotel, we spent about two hours opening all the bags to make sure that we could determine what was actually in this bag and what is therefore now missing. So a couple hours just indexing all of that, each one of those discoveries, oh, that was in there too, you know, you can imagine. And even trying to assign a value to it. Uh, we looked online at their policy, and I don't know if you knew this or not. I'm, I'm going to become the Alaska Airlines informant here, just so you know. Just so you know, they have a policy that uh, they don't cover any jewelry that might be lost in any of your bags because it's deemed to be inappropriate checked baggage content. Just so you know, they also won't pay you back for anything that's valued over hundred dollars unless you can provide proof of purchase. So good luck with that. So we went through, after we kind of came up with our amounts of loss, complied with the policy, even though I disagree with it, and just submitted a claim of $1,100. Seems very reasonable. Uh, The next day, we set out to replace kind of the things that she needed immediately, got some of those, and I began filling out a form known as an SOM, a statement of mishandling, and uh, trying to supply the receipts that I could. So this is what I was going to do. So I went to a coffee house in Fullerton called Drip. That's where all the kids go. So uh, I was at the kids' coffee house there, and I was just going to open up my hotspot on my phone and use that for internet access to fill out this um, PDF form. So I begin to do this, and, um, and I realize, oh, there's an open Wi-Fi here. How cool. This is so not Alaska. In Alaska, no one gives you free Wi-Fi, but here they do. That's cool. So I hop on it and start using it, and uh, next thing you know, bing, pop-up, pop-up pop-up. I'm getting these advertisements, and I'm going, what's going on here? And I thought, well, maybe this is how they give you free Wi-Fi, right? You get these advertisements. So I'm trying to close these things, which become increasingly difficult to close. Like they move the close button around in weird places. (laughs) Next thing you know, you've clicked on something you didn't mean to, and all of a sudden, now I'm getting not just pop-up ads, but I'm getting like, why did that application start? What's this? Why is that going on? And now my mouse isn't working right. I'm doing this touchpad thing, and all of a sudden the cursor jumps over here. I'm typing, and all of a sudden now it's in you know, all caps. or what? So weird things are happening. And I'm like, oh, this is so frustrating. 
So I do what we do when our computer doesn't work, right? You restart it, right? We're going to do a do-over here, do-over. So I close the machine, the restart, open it back up, and guess what I had lost? All of the information I had put into this form up to that point. Didn't save. It's gone. Okay. And then the machine gets going, and it starts working right. And I'm like, oh, good. And then it starts working wrong. Okay. I've had it. And not only that, but I didn't bring a charging cord, and I'm starting to run out of power. So I'm like, I'll deal with this when I get home. So I close it, and that's that. And uh, so then I get home, and I finally sit down for what I know is going to be a very frustrating experience. I open up the computer. This is going to be a long story, by the way. <laughs> I open up the computer and kind of brace for impact here, because I've got to have all my documents ready to go, everything, all at once. I've got to do this in one sitting. I know you'll lose it if you back out of it. But my computer is still affected. So I'm trying to like put the cursor in the field and then type in quickly, and, you know, and I'm just constantly doing this. It's like this game of whack-a-mole. You know, it's so frustrating. I'm going crazy. Almost lost my salvation multiple times. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had to like, it's like someone's playing a game with me. I'm like, am I on, you know, a show or something? I'm trying to put the cursor in the field and then boom, it jumps to another. It's like trying to keep a cat underwater, which is hard, you know. <laughs> Finally, I get the thing filled out. I counted a serious moral victory. Send it off. Only to get the report back denied. Denied. And I can't figure out why it's denied, so I'll call customer service and they tell me, it's because you didn't file a police report. I had been misinformed that I had to do that. Apparently, I thought they were supposed to do that, so I filed a police report. Wait. Denied. Second time. Why was I denied a second time? They said that the bag and action packer was inappropriate uh, checked baggage material, not just what was inside, but the bag itself. Okay. Uh, so anyways, this keeps going on, and I'll, I'll, they have offered, by the way, a $100 voucher for the next time that I fly. Yeah, big time. Okay. So now let's set that one aside. I told you it's going to be a long story. Now I'm ordering some, a gift for my son on eBay. I go and order it over my phone, and quickly realize uh, after the person, con the vendor contacts me back and says, can you cancel your order because I don't have any of these. I try to cancel it. eBay says, we're rejecting your cancellation. <laughs> Meanwhile, my money's gone. That's a fraud. So after about a week and a half of fighting that, I just got the money back yesterday. And I'm, anyways, do you feel this with me a little bit? Have you had these moments? What started off as a lost bag I, I'm, just, I'm just fighting all of these things. I'm trying to solve all of these crimes and injustices with a broken device, a flawed instrument. In the meantime, I'm also trying to work on my dissertation, some tax information. I'm trying to set up a temp laptop, uh, and, and I have this broken machine that I can't even get this stuff off of onto the next one, and I, I kind of hit the wall. I just sort of ran out of whatever it is, emotional capacity, margin, something. I just, I can't do this. And I, it was like, I'm a grown man, but I'm about to cry. You know, like not even like the lone masculine tear, like noises kind of cry. I'm just frustrated. And it hit me that this is a picture of the sinfulness of sin. This is a picture of the life that we live in. The doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean we are as bad as we might be, but it does mean that sin has affected 
every aspect, every corner of our lives and of everyone else's life. And we live in the froth of this, right? We live in a broken and sinful world and we are in a broken and sinful instrument ourselves. And we need God to intervene. We need an intervention. And so all of this to point to the main uh, sort of bullet this morning, which is this. We need the given righteousness of God because none of us is righteous in and of ourselves. I'll come back to my stories here. Uh, A few weeks ago when I introduced this series, um, I mentioned one of the rhetorical features that Paul employs throughout the book of Romans. It's a technique known as a diatribe. We tend to think of a diatribe as an angry sermonic rant like I started with this morning. But actually, in sort of ancient rhetoric um, or classic rhetoric, it's more like um, where a teacher is answering questions of, of sort of an, an imagined dialogue and persuading through that. So fancy word number one this morning is diatribe. Fancy word number two this morning, interlocutor. Try to use that today in a sentence. Okay. The interlocutor is, is this other person with whom I'm engaging. It could be the customer service person on the phone. It could be the person in the coffee house. It could be a friend. It could be an imaginary person. But it's this person that I'm engaging with. So Paul sets out here, he sets up this hypothetical dialogue with an imaginary questioner or interlocutor in order to demonstrate our need for a given righteousness, a righteousness that is from God. And so that's how we start here. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse. You, who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you, who pass judgment, do the same things. So the first point this morning is this. To judge another is to judge myself. To judge myself. So in this, this diatribe here, Paul's interlocutor would have been an upstanding member of the Jewish community in Rome, right? One who is critical of the Gentile population for not even really trying to follow the Mosaic law. So that's what Paul is speaking to. And in this tension between uh, between Jew and Gentile in Rome, there are flawed perspectives on both sides. And Paul will expose them both. So last week... He addressed the rebellious person, the Greek or the Gentile, basically who has rejected the worship of God. And Paul walked us through the implications of that rejection. God gives them over to their rebellion. That's the wrath of God that's being revealed. It's this hell on earth. It's I'll let you live into your sin and experience the consequences of it. So he gives them over to sinful desires, then shameful us, then a depraved mind. I believe there's a progression there. Rebels fall further and further away from the ways of God as they live into their sin. Therefore, they are experiencing a form of God's wrath, the consequences of their sin. So the rebellious person, what we saw last week, the rebellious person needs the gospel. They need the gospel. And in this section, Paul turns the corner here. And here he turns his attention to the religious person. And he's going to show us that the religious person, shocker, needs the gospel also. 
also. So this person is the rule keeper. They try to live by God's laws. This person is likely a quick study on the failure of others. This is the self-righteous person who stands back all too happy to point out what's wrong with you, right? They point out the failure, failures of others in contrast to their very religious life. And here's, here's the, the lesson. You can be just as lost in religion as you can be rebellion. So Paul here is addressing the moralistic Jew, critical of an immoral Gentile, and he basically is asserting you both need the gospel. The both of you. Just because you know the law doesn't mean you've kept the law perfectly. So how can you, who one who tries to live by the law, stand in judgment of a Gentile who doesn't even try to? Neither of you have kept it perfectly. So when you judge another, you are in fact judging yourself. You're still a lawbreaker. Your imperfect attempts at keeping the law to make yourself righteousness have resulted in your own failures and your own guilt. That's your status. You're not more righteous than another. You're still guilty. You're just guilty. It's like that situation you ran into in third grade Sunday school class when Susie raised her hand and said, Billy's praying with his eyes open. Right? Same thing. In Matthew 7, Jesus exposes this as well. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So last week I made the point, or several points, that all sin is an offense against the holy God. Any sin is too much sin. Any amount of sin makes me a sinner in need of a Savior. And even though I personally believe some sins are greater than other sins, it kind of doesn't matter. It's a moot point. If I've sinned once, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And none of us, not one of us, can say that we are without sin. Not any of us. 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so therein lies the problem. We're all sinners. We all need a savior. The immoral that we looked at last week and the moralist, both are sinners in need of a savior. They fall under the same peril and they need the same solution. So let's continue to track Paul's argument here uh, to the self-righteous moralist. Secondly, don't be fooled by God's kindness. All will face judgment. Verse two. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself. 
for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Some of the most lost people on the planet are good moral people. Think about that. Think about your own life. Think about those people that you work with, your neighbors with, they're in your family. They're just really good people. And they kind of think, what do I need of the gospel? What do I need of God? I'm just sort of a good person. Some of the most lost people on the planet are good people. People who do mostly good things most of the time, and some of them might be you. You. In Paul's immediate context here, this letter written to Rome, right, there's this social and religious tension between Jew and Gentile uh, in and around the churches. And if we bring sort of that issue into our contemporary situation, when we do this rightly, when we ask our three hermeneutical questions, remember these? What did this mean to the original here? What's the timeless principle? How is that significant for us? So when we bring this all the way forward for our contemporary purposes, it might be like Paul saying, you churchgoer, you upstanding moralist, you in the Baptist church in the second row, which we all know is the Baptist first row, right? (laughs) You. The message is essentially, just because you are not now experiencing that element of God's wrath through the inherent consequences of sin, the rebellious, as we saw last week, doesn't mean you're safe from God's judgment. You. You rule keeper. You religious. You firstborn obedient type A moralist. You may be just as lost. I'll go a step further. I think you may be more lost. I think it is harder... You may be harder to save because of your sense of self-righteousness. In your general obedience, you may have found you have a pretty good life. You've kept most of God's laws and actually that's yielded some good results, some relative peace and you enjoy that. You enjoy peace on earth in contrast to the hell on earth that that the rebel is dealing. You sort of bask in that, but the message here is don't let the easier life fool you. Don't let God's kindness fool you. A judgment is coming. And the standard for reaching heaven isn't really, really good or better than most. The standard for reaching heaven is absolute moral perfection and righteousness. Anybody got it on your own? So, hey, churchgoer, you don't have it either. You brownie point churchgoer, your judgment is just waiting in storage. That's what Paul is getting at here. You're experiencing this earthly peace from your generally moral life, but the day of judgment is coming. God's wrath is coming for everyone for any amount of sin. Let me keep pressing in. Who in this room is vulnerable to missing heaven. It's you missionary kid. You who grew up in a Christian home. You who obeyed your parents. You who went to Sunday school. You who finished Awana, not just started, you finished. You who were a leader in the youth group. You who went on a short-term missions trip. 
you who went to Bible school, you who sing on the worship team, you who teach God's word in Sunday school, small group, or behind the pulpit, you who sit on the business board, deacon board, or elder board, you who are religious, answer me this question, on what basis will you be saved from the coming judgment of God for any and all sin? The only right answer to that question is that the Lord Jesus Christ is my savior and my refuge. And I have fallen completely on the mercy of the court for grace and mercy that he will be the one who has paid for my sin, that judgment would fall on him and not on me. That is the only answer, the only way of escape. In Matthew 21, we find one of the, I think it must be, must be the, the least taught or cited uh, parable in all of the scriptures. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it feels like that. We find the parable of the two sons. What do you think? There was a blind man who had two sons. He went to the first, uh, excuse me, he's not blind, he's not blind at all. You see how how infrequently we go to this? I don't even know where, I completely inserted a word that's not there. Which one of us is blind, right? Okay. What do you think? There was a man, just a man. <laughs> just a man. He had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did, and even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So Jesus teaches this amazing paradox here that the sinner is closer to salvation than the self-righteous. Why? Because the sinner knows that he is wrong and has a better chance of changing his mind, repentance, and turning instead to a right relationship with the Father through the Son. But the self-righteous live with a false sense of security. They live a performance-based religion and they end up missing heaven by a hair. Why not miss it by a mile? The way of righteousness is through repentance. It is the only way we will get the righteousness we need for heaven. Now, the next verse here, a few verses, may be the trickiest in in our whole section. So hang with me. Verse 6. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. You find that slightly confusing in the context here? It sounds like he's just contradicting what has come before this, right? It sounds like he's saying that it is in our doing that one is saved or condemned. 
But I actually think what Paul is doing here is he's sort of calling the moralists bluff. I think this is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek response. In other words, I think it sounds like this. I'm going to add a little my own Paul tone to this. You law keeper, you. Way to go. Way to go. You're a good guy. You're a good gal. You guys remember that scene from Elf, by the way? I I just jumped to Elf. (laughs) Maybe the funniest Christmas movie ever. Where he, where he arrives in New York City and walks past this cafe and sees the sign on the door, world's greatest cup of coffee. And he opens the door and he jumps in. Way to go, guys. You did it. I love that scene. Of course, he's unfortunately sincere and naive in them. But I think that's the tone that I hear from Paul. Way to go, guys. You're good moral people. You do good, you do good things all the time. But let me start with the standard. God will repay each person according to what they've done. Are you good all the time? Now let's hear that same passage again with that almost sarcastic tone, right? God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So you can imagine the discomfort of the moralist hearing this, realizing I will be judged on my actions and not my associations. Uh Uh-oh, that's a problem. Because my actions are not perfect. And as much as I'm pointing the finger at others for their failures, I realize I've failed. Maybe not as much as them, but plenty. And so Paul holds up this very, this mirror, this very exposing mirror, which reveals that they're pretty good, but not perfect. They too are sinners. By the way, there are different mirrors out there. You know this? We've got one in our, not to overshare, in our closet. It's a very nice mirror. It's a slimming mirror. I, I think whenever it was installed, someone must have made it concave a little bit because I look at that and I go, all right, that's all right. I notice when I go to Planet Fitness, however, they have fat mirrors. Anybody else with me? It's a conspiracy. There's a few mirrors in there I won't look in. I'm like, I don't, I don't think that's right. Paul holds up the fat mirror. Look at you guys. Look at you. That's what's going on here. So God is impartial, judging us by our actions and not our associations. And so he really sticks it to the self-righteous, general law-abiding Jew here, stinging them especially with the phrase, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So they're sort of claiming a pride of place or first in place. And Paul is saying, actually, you're first in responsibility. He had the first opportunity. And so his, his point with this phrase to the self-righteous, general law-keeping Jew is that you had first right of refusal. He's reminding them of the privilege that they've actually squandered. So it might sound something like this. God privileged Israel. He chose you from among all the people to be his own, 
To you, he revealed himself and the goodness of his ways. You're Abraham's children. You were given his covenant. You were given the law. You were given the sacrificial system and the temple. Under David, you were given the promise of an eternal king, the Messiah. And it was from you, Israel, that Christ was born. And yet it was, to, or it was by you that the Savior was killed. You were the ones who had the front row seat to the crucifixion and the resurrection, and it was you who should have been able to square all of the law and the prophets with the passion of the Christ. It was to you that the apostles went first with the gospel message, and it was you who rejected him again. And so Paul brings this sort of these privilege-claiming Jews back to the priority of their responsibility. Verse 9, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So you will be judged by your action, not your association with any people group. The self-righteous moralist then realizes, I'm in trouble. If I'm judged only by my actions, I'm in trouble. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles do not have the law, they do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God's judges, when God judges people's secret thoughts, secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. I think this is a, I'll be honest, a little confusing argument to chase Paul through here. Uh, I think in a sense he's basically saying it's not just hearing the law that one is fine, uh, it's in doing it. And the Gentiles have sometimes do the law by accident almost. And you do it most of the time on purpose, but not all of the time. In other words, if we break it down into a point, neither ignorance of the law nor knowledge of the law is what exempts us from judgment. Neither of those two things. And I'm going to tell this a little bit differently. I'm going I'm to teach this like I think Jesus might teach this. Two men went out to fish. Let's call it Prince William Sound. One of the fishermen liked the freedom of fishing from the ocean shore. He, simply, he fished simply with no gear, no safety devices, no cell phone, no radio, no gun, no waders, very little tackle. He loved the pure, unfettered freedom of fishing quietly and freely away from others. The second man was a different kind of fisherman. He fished the oceanic sound in a small skiff, an 18-footer. He used radar to check for depths and to spot for schools of fish deep down. He used a radio to listen to the weather reports. He had downriggers, multiple rods, gaffs, and a deck full of gear and technology. It was a small but well-appointed skiff. While they were both out fishing, the NOAA Weather Service issued a warning. A 9.2 earthquake off the coast had triggered a severe and catastrophic tsunami. A wall, a 1,200-foot wave, was moving towards them at 500 miles per hour. It was coming into the sound. It would reach them in a matter of seconds. 
it was anticipated to go into the land area for miles. The man on shore knew nothing about the wave, just kept fishing, dumb and happy, free and unfettered. The man in the boat received the radio broadcast and thought, I sure am glad I have my boat. Do you see how absurd the trust is in his little boat? Both will perish. One in ignorance, one with knowledge. Neither will escape the wave that is coming. The skiff is no match for what is coming. In other words, not knowing God's moral law will not excuse us. Knowing God's laws and that we've broken some will not excuse us. We all of us need one who has obeyed the law for us, one who has paid for our sin and gives his righteousness to us. We need a savior. We need a given righteousness. This is the last point. We're all guilty of breaking God's law. Therefore, we all need a given righteousness. This is what comes out of the the main passage, the main two verses of, of the whole book. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Well, I started my sermon um, telling you about all of these obstacles that I had, all these problems, especially digitally, that I was uh, trying to fix and how they were just spooling up on me and how I sort of hit the wall and just ran out of the capacity uh, to do this. And so while I was trying to transition the stuff from my old computer to this replacement temporary computer, I was realizing everything that needed to go from here to there, and the machine I was using wasn't working. I couldn't get this machine to get me to this machine. It, it just, and I ran out of gas. And so I cried out for help, not to God, but to Andrew, who is one of God's <laughs> good helpers. <laughs> so Andrew is the the uh, Christ figure in my story. Don't let it go to your head, brother. <laughs> I asked him, I said, listen, can you just help me? Like, I just don't have it. And could you just give me a half hour or whatever? He says, sure. So Wednesday, he came down. He sat down and began to work on my computer, began to transfer things over. And then he just ran a bit of a, a virus software uh, in the background just to check. And wouldn't you know it, wouldn't you know it, it wasn't a physical problem with my computer. There was a little virus in there little sucker virus and he removed it and guess what my laptop is righteous again (laughs) we live in a sinful broken world we ourselves are sinful and broken instruments whether by a little or a lot we cannot fix ourselves we need an outside agent to remove the virus of sin and to restore our righteousness we need a given righteousness we need a savior the good news of the gospel is this if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and this invitation is not to the rebellious it's to anyone who in this room is religious and thinks that you're safe in that. Have you fallen upon the grace and the mercy of Christ? Let me pray for us. Father, um, not one of us is righteous, not one. But your son was. He obeyed the law 
none of us can or has. Whether we're ignorant of it or whether we're a pretty good rule keeper of it, we're all too short, too short. We need the righteousness of Christ. Lord, I pray if there is any upstanding, high-performing, moralist, religious person here this morning who has just been cut to the heart and knows they have not been trusting in Christ but themselves. Bring them to repentance, the sweet repentance that leads to life. And may they truly confess their sins and trust in Jesus alone as their Savior and Lord and receive his given righteousness. For it's in his name we pray, amen.